Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We've all been there, or our friends or a family member has been there. We have an emergency or a, a procedure which brings us into a hospital. Weeks later, we get a bill that, if we're reading it right, tells us that one of the physicians that treated us was not in our insurance carrier's network. They were, in fact, out of network. Uh, so there's no discount from our insurance company, and we, the patient, have to pick up the remainder of what may be a very large healthcare bill. It's called surprise billing. Uh, you may be feeling better after the healthcare, but surprise, you've got a big bill. Welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Today, we are happy to talk to Kurt Gallagher, Executive Director of the Healthcare Business Management Association, or HBMA. HBMA is a major voice in the revenue cycle management industry in U.S. healthcare. And our topic today is surprise billing. I'm your host, Matthew Albright, and I serve as the communication committee chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I, WEDI. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. My day job is chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous Payments. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. In our virtual studio, we've got the producer of this podcast, Michael McNutt, Director of Education and Events for Weedy. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. All right, good. Like I said, in our virtual today, studio today, we also have Kurt Gallagher, Executive Director of the Healthcare Business Management Association, HBMA. Kurt, we're very excited to talk to you today. It's great to have you on our show. Matthew, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Good. So on the show, uh, we like to start with uh, talking about people's uh, background stories, right? Uh, we often find that uh, healthcare leaders have taken their experience and what they've learned maybe in other industries or maybe what they learned grew on, growing up or at their, their kitchen tables and, and find that it has some application in the healthcare industry. And I remember when you first started HBMA a couple of years ago, you said you had a background working for the pet food industry. I think you even wrote for the pet food newsletter. And even then, I remember speaking to you and you said you saw commonalities between that industry, pet food, and the healthcare industry, at least in terms of thinking through policy. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you came to be in healthcare? Matthew, I recall that that first meeting, we were both sitting in, in uh, meetings of the HPMA Government Relations Committee way back in the summer of 2018. That's right. It seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> it, it, it does, uh, the, uh, these past nine months. But you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of similarities to my past experience, even though the, the experience in the pet food industry wasn't with healthcare. Now, HPMA is not my first position in the healthcare sector, but I did see a lot of commonalities in terms of the regulations, the requirements that both industries need to comply with. You know, with healthcare, there are a lot of rules or a lot of red tape, as we'll call it in some cases, lots of procedures that the industry must comply with. Uh, and for uh, the pet food industry or the food industry broadly, there are also uh, a very uh, complex web of regulations, both federal and state, that the industries need to comply with to make sure that their products are safe and that they are um, communicating in a way that is um, transparent and accurate to consumers. Very good. And, and I think the other thing that you pointed out was there's quite a few sub-regulatory 
sub-regulatory organizations that are developing some of the rules. Is that correct in the, in the pet food industry? That's right. Uh, regulations are set by FDA at the federal level by each state government. And so to keep uh, the states in line, because we've got 50 of them, plus the territories, there's a, a volunteer organization where all those state officials come together, work with the feds to come up with um, uniform regulations or uniform laws that they take back to their state. That process is... Um, uh, it, it's pretty involved, though. It takes uh, sometimes years for proposals to make it through the the process of, of being vetted and finalized. But it does create um, relative uniformity across the country. Very good. And it reminds us, it's reflective of what we're seeing here in the healthcare industry with uh, CAQH Core, and they're working on their operating rules and X12 and uh, even HL7 at this point, right? All these kind of smaller groups that help build a whole regulatory structure. I think it also seems to uh, promote a kind of commercial, uh, private-public uh, partnership that maybe you don't see in, in, in other industries. Uh, I don't know if that's true in pet food. It feels as though you get a lot more industry input if you're working on the rules from a kind of a grassroots kind of standpoint. Do you, does that ring a bell with the pet food industry? Absolutely. Uh, it, it behooves any industry or any group of stakeholders to be at the table to be able to provide input and help shape the final outcome of, of a, a proposed uh, regulation or proposed law. And with that, uh, you know, the organization there, I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but it's called AFCO. So if you ever look at a, a bag of pet food, you'll see a, a statement related to a, AFCO, A-A-F-C-O. And it's AFCO that you know, puts in place the rules for the labels, the definitions for all the ingredients that get in a, go in those products, the nutritional profiles, and it's the pet food companies that produce the products that provide that nutrition that want to have an opportunity to help shape those regulations. So number one, the regulations are reflective of reality, that they're workable, uh, and also that they're fair both to industry and to consumers. Very good. That's certainly a goal, I think, that we have in healthcare too, to try and get as much involvement of the people who actually have to use these regulations on the ground uh, in the, the development. So to that note, HBMA, uh, you're the executive director. And I remember when I was at CMS working as a regulator, I used to love looking forward to the HBMA folks every year. They'd set up a room at the Baltimore CMS offices, and they'd, they'd march us all through one by one all day, all from the different departments at CMS. And, and HBMA was just an excellent group full of excellent uh, uh, expertise about the administration of healthcare. And later, like we talked about, I, I participated in their government relations committee. Uh, they actually read all the rules coming out of CMS, which I think is amazing. And then they visit Congress people in DC and they know a lot more about what those regulations said than the, the lawmakers they visited. So I'm sorry, tell us a bit more about the group. Uh, who are the members? What are their priorities? So HBMA is the Healthcare Business Management Association. Our members are, you know, traditionally called medical billing companies, but uh, you know, the term is the term of art has has uh, evolved. Uh, the term that's now preferred is revenue cycle management company because what our members do is so much more than medical billing. You know, they handle for um, healthcare providers of all stripes. So it could be an independent um, physician. It could be a radiology clinic. It could be a dialysis clinic. It could be an anesthesiologist group. Uh, they handle their um, submissions to insurance companies, the claims that are submitted. They handle um, any pre-authorization requests. 
Um, they handle appeals if there's a claim that it's denied. Uh, but they also provide a wide range of services beyond um, revenue cycle management. Um, they may uh, assist with provider credentialing with the um, commercial payers. Um, they may provide accounting services or human resources services. They might actually handle collections. So our members really um, offer a wide range of services. And in fact, um, just today, we, we put out our, our um, semi-annual billing fee survey. It's a survey that we uh, conduct of the industry just so that we, our members and, and the healthcare providers out there broadly can really see um, what the rates are for those services and they can benchmark against them. That's out now. It's one of the resources that we provide as well in terms of uh, the areas of work that HPMA engages in. So, so really, when we talk about the cost of healthcare, when we talk about uh, reimbursement for different uh, procedures in healthcare, HBMA is right in the middle of that that discussion. They're, they're the people to go to when you're thinking through policy. Absolutely, we Good. see it all, touch it all. Good, uh, and uh, surprise billing is one of those policy issues. HBMA uh, was certainly involved with that uh, before the pandemic, as was Congress, and we saw it in the front pages of the paper up until the point where the pandemic took it over. Um, and I think Congress is fully expected to take it again up again early this year or 2021. Uh, maybe we start uh, for our listeners and define some terms. And I think I may have used the wrong language, but what is surprise billing? So surprise billing is, is when a patient uh, seeks out medical care and they receive a bill um, for services that were out of network, even though they were um, being treated by uh, a provider or service that they believed was in network. And in some cases, maybe a network, but there may be someone who's involved in their care who's out of network. For example, um, there may be emergency care. Uh, and uh, the, first of all, it's HBM's position that in the instance of emergency care, that the emergency care should extend beyond simply stabilizing the patient. So for example, if you have a heart attack or, or you suffer a stroke, um, there's uh, significant care after simply stabilizing you and making sure that you're going to survive that, that really challenging situation. And we believe that that should be part of the emergency care. Um, but you know, in some instances, it's not considered the emergency care, and that may result in um, out-of-network charges for those um, follow-up care, you know, for example, if you're admitted into the hospital. Uh, and that's one of the areas that we'd like to see some reform around. Um, there are other areas. Um, if there are... Uh, you know, health plans deny coverage for um, in-network uh, services that the prudent layperson um, sought out under the prudent layperson standard. Um, when we actually met with uh, members of Congress on this issue of surprise billing, one of our GR committee members was able to, to share a personal anecdote that was really um, quite dramatic. Um, her, a member of her family, a young member of her family, had an accident where she broke off a number of her front teeth, and it was right at the root. Uh, she brought in photos to share with um, congressional staff. Um, this is an instance where the prudent layperson would say, yes, this is emergency care. This person should be treated uh, and shouldn't be restricted by whether or not the care is in network or out. Uh, the person simply needs to be treated quickly. Um, and, and so it's situations like that that we you know, want to make sure that when there are there's coverage and there are decisions about coverage and whether or not the, the coverage is in network or out, that there be accommodations to be able to handle uh, 
situations like this that aren't as black and white as in-network are now and what rates will be charged to the patients. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and I do think that um, Congress and maybe even industry in general has some agreement about this. I mean, I think it's got bipartisan support. I think uh, both payers and providers think it's an issue that needs to be tackled. Can you talk about what the commonality, what the common agreement is on, on what needs to be fixed in this situation? And then we could talk about more of the contentious issues. As I say, the devil is in the details. You're right, Matthew. There is broad um, consensus that um, something needs to be done to to fix this situation to prevent these um, these you know surprise billing situations or, or as we call them out of network billing situations. Um, we want to make sure though that there's fairness for the providers. Uh, in this issue, there are there's a role for providers. There's a role for the commercial payers. There's also a role for the patients themselves in terms of um, coming up with a solution. Uh, we developed a framework on uh, how we uh, assess legislative proposals and policy proposals, and any proposal that comes forward will will assess against the framework we developed. Gotcha. Good. So, what is HBMA's uh, position on this? Um, certainly. Uh, the, we want to make sure we want to mitigate that surprise billing happens at all, right? I think that's kind of the goal. It's like how we facilitate that. And what's HBMA's take on how do we mitigate so that we're not surprised by billing? When it comes to um, the commercial payers, they really have a, a big role in this uh, in terms of uh, the networks that they they form, the degree to which they may create networks that are restrictive the rates, the reimbursement rates that those networks provide, and actually how quickly they can get providers enrolled in those networks and ultimately credentialed in those networks. Um, we see some instances where, for example, a network may um, have healthcare providers on their, their roster at the open enrollment period, only to have them dropped shortly after the open enrollment period. So, you know, that in itself um, creates a problem for the, the patient because they may have taken up that insurance policy with the expectation that their preferred healthcare provider was in network. They may seek out treatment only to learn that the provider no longer is in network. So it's situations like that that we want to ensure that policymakers have in mind, legislators have in mind as they craft solutions. Very good. And and uh, and would you say, uh, what would you say the responsibility for the facility or the hospital would be in some of those situations? The facility, uh, it's, it comes down to transparency, to, to being clear to patients uh, about the network that they, that they, um, they, networks that they participate in, who the providers are in there, and if there are indeed services that um, are likely to be out of network, that they are transparent about what they are. You know, Maybe I'm getting off uh, a little bit the, the sort of official line, but, you know, we're all used to seeing sort of broad disclaimers and releases, uh, and, and, but they're so broad that they become meaningless. Uh, and so I, I think that it, it is incumbent upon the, um, the facilities um, to, to um, be as transparent as possible in terms of um, care providers that may be out of network. Uh, when um, there's care that is being rendered. Good. So it sounds like it's it's both a payer or, or insurer and a, a facility uh, issue, and 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 if if uh, each one of them has a certain 
responsibility. But I tell you what, thank you, Kirk. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we will continue our discussion with Kurt Gallagher, Executive Director of HBMA. Uh, for now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer, Michael McNutt. The preeminent national membership association for health IT guidance and collaboration, WIDI has earned the title of being an instrumental force in engaging public and private partnerships, facilitating discussions, and providing a collaborative voice as a national healthcare advisor to provide meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. Become a member and provide national leadership that enhances the exchange of clinical and administrative healthcare information. Join one of our various work groups where Weedy members collect input, exchange ideas, and make recommendations that inspire impactful and far-reaching change in our industry. Learn more about how you can make a difference at Weedy.org. We're back and we're talking with Kurt Gallagher, Executive Director of HBMA, the Healthcare Business Management Association, on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. So, Kurt, we were talking about uh, the uh, uh, surprise billing issue, and I know uh, at least half of the states have have passed uh, regulations or laws which which certainly prohibit balanced billing. Um, and I think what we see in the laws uh, at the states, and I think this is reflective of what Congress is playing with, is this tension between you know setting up a reimbursement rate for those out-of-network uh, services so that uh, a health plan and a provider knows exactly what will be paid when something's out-of-network, right? So it seems like, um, you know, the, the prohibition of, like, keeping the consumer out of it or keeping the patient out of it, everybody seems to agree on that. But where there seems to be contention is what should that reimbursement rate or should there even be a reimbursement rate and should the insurer and the provider just kind of argue it uh, among themselves, and then maybe if if they can't get to a uh, to an end, then go to an arbitration or mediation. So, where is HBMA on that concept of uh, reimbursement rate versus not, or reimbursement rate versus one versus the one versus the other? So, HBMA doesn't believe that there ought to be any um, set rate in terms of these reimbursement rates. You know, there's so much diversity within the country, uh, even within states, in terms of the different. Um, Markets, so we what we believe that the the reimbursement rates should be reflective of the market values. Now, if the legislative uh, proposal that's um, enacted requires that there be binding arbitration, we also um, want that the rate that is considered for reimbursement to be based upon um, data collected by an organization called Fair Health. So, eighty percent of the rate. Um, determined by Fair Health is would we would view as a fair reimbursement rate for the providers. Gotcha, gotcha. So, so what you're saying is um, keep the keep the consumer out of it, keep the patient out of it, and then have the 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 payer, the insurer, and the provider, the hospital, work out a, a rate. If they can't work it out uh, and they need to go to a third party, the arbitration, then in that third party arbitration, they use this Fair Health uh, benchmark. Is that kind of the HBMA position? Yes. Okay, very good. All right. Um, what else is HBMA working on? What other issues are they uh, concerned with? Um, how has their last year looked? And, you know, what kind of policy things are they thinking through? Well, you know, aside from the pandemic, which has, you know, been so much of the focus for this year, and, you know, providing updates to our members on the, the you know, the relief programs, the provider relief fund, which uh, has directly benefited providers earlier this year. We're also looking forward to the future. So despite all the challenges that the pandemic and the pain that the pandemic 
has caused, it has created some opportunities for improvement in healthcare and access to healthcare in the United States, primarily through expansions of telehealth. And so we are actually developing a, a new policy framework that will espouse our vision for telehealth. We expect that that uh, policy framework will be finalized early in 2021. And we'd be happy to come back and talk with you, Matthew, about the details of that policy vision, that policy framework, once it's completed. Very good. Well, we'd, we'd be great. It'd be great having you back. And I think what what HBMA brings to that telehealth discussion is um, less about the, the the clinical aspects, but really about how that how we should view telehealth in the revenue um, cycle management um, environment. It seems like that'll be a very unique uh, viewpoint for HBMA to bring to the table. Absolutely. I, I can't get ahead of our um, policy development process, so I can't get into the details just yet, but I can provide some teasers. Okay, good. Okay, you, you're gonna, can you give us some teasers right now? <laughs> yeah, so again, we're, we're finalizing our vision. Um, you know, at this point, we want to make sure that we are helpful to the industry and to our members. Um, uh, we Determining what we can do to educate our members, but also be their advocate in terms of policy. You know, the, the challenge that may not be understood or appreciated out there um, among the uh, providers and, you know, the, maybe the broader um, revenue cycle management uh, industry is that, um, Fixes will require congressional action. There's limits to what CMS can um, accomplish permanently via regulations. They've had some latitude during the pandemic, but once the public health emergency is over, um, those regulatory changes will be repealed. And again, some of the requirements related to telehealth are really uh, defined in federal statute. And so we'll be working to um, seek permanent uh, expansions of um, the allowance are made during the public health emergency uh, related to telehealth. Good. And, and so what I'm hearing really is, is certainly HBMA is behind uh, this push for telehealth and, and what CMS has done over the last year in terms of waiving certain uh, restrictions and prohibitions, which would have which would have served really as an obstacle to, to healthcare access through telehealth and other, other uh, mediums. Um, HBMA is all for it. That's what I'm hearing, right? Yes, Matthew, it's, it's, it's a complicated issue. When the law related to telehealth was enacted, um, our technology infrastructure was different. Technology has evolved over the past few years. Uh, and you know, originally, the telehealth provisions were focused on uh, expanding and providing access for healthcare for people who are in rural communities who might not have a, a specialist, for example, in their area. Um, but the way telehealth has been used throughout the public health emergency, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, is that it's become uh, a means of providing health care for a much larger uh, uh, proportion of the population, not just in rural areas, but really in all of our communities. And in fact, there may be some areas of, uh, of practice, some specialties where telehealth may be um, a preferred method of delivering care in the future. You know, one that comes top of mind is behavioral health, but I'm sure that there are others. Right. Very good. Okay, it, let's break away from uh, your HBMA work for a minute. And and what is your view of where is healthcare headed, uh, either from a rev revenue cycle management um, standpoint, like are we all going to be digital and electronic and no more paperwork in a couple of years, or 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 you know just just tell me what you think we're headed as a healthcare industry in general in this country. Country. You know, I expect that there will be continued um, evolution to provide more access, uh, faster care. 
you know, again, we, we were forced to evolve because of the pandemic, and now we're seeing some of those benefits, you know, related to telehealth, but there are other areas as well, I'm sure. Um, we also need to look at, this is, this I guess, harkens back to another healthcare organization I used to work with, our supply chain. So the, the healthcare sector has certainly been challenged with supply, uh, a PPE, uh, uh, and other products. And, and that's another area where I expect that they will probably see um, significant um, evolution over the next few years in that area as well. Okay. Very much appreciate this discussion, Kurt. Uh, thank you for this. Before we sign off, do you have any uh, resources or, or webpage or documents that you think listeners should check out that could give you more information, give them more information of things, some of the things we talked about today? Your listeners should uh, visit us at hbma.org for Healthcare Business Management Association. We have a wide range of resources on there from um, our um, policy framework related to the um, out-of-network uh, healthcare situations or surprise billing as it's colloquially called. Um, our telehealth policy framework will be posted there once it's finalized next year. Our billing fee survey results are up. Uh, educational programming, which we provide throughout the year, uh, which helps the industry keep up with the latest developments, both in terms of regulations, in terms of industry developments, and, and broader developments related to healthcare. And if members want to sign up for our weekly newsletter, they can do that through our website as well. It comes out every Thursday, and we'll keep them informed of um, the latest news uh, related to the revenue cycle management industry. Very good. Thank you, Kurt. And uh, we look forward to that uh, telehealth position paper coming out, and we'll look for it in the coming months and, and have you back here to talk about that. Appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. This has been a good discussion with Kurt Gallagher, Executive Director of the Healthcare Business Management Association. One of Weedy's primary functions is to keep health plans and hospitals and other providers educated on health IT. Uh, very much appreciate the time and expertise from Kurt today. This has been the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.